0: Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I am peachy.
0: I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-controversies. Marvel is in disarray. Ahead of this weekend's release of The Marvels, the sequel to the 1.1 billion dollar grossing Captain Marvel, Variety dropped a bomb on Marvel Studios, highlighting the somewhat <sighs> dire state this of is affairs. It's not my internet. What's that? What just happened?
1: You, you froze, just completely and then froze, then Peter froze
2: Wait, I didn't freeze. You? Alyssa was fine and then and Sunny froze.
1: Sonny froze and then you froze. I'm the only one who's blameless here.
0: All right. I'll start over again. (laughs) Variety dropped a bomb on Marvel Studios, highlighting the somewhat dire state of affairs at the once unstoppable Marvel Cinematic Universe, as it hits the first real rough patch since the debut of Iron Man 15 years ago. Uh, Among the issues, Jonathan Majors, whose arrest for domestic violence continues to hang over Marvel's plans to make his character Kang the Thanos-like heavy for the next sequence of Marvel movies. Uh, There are the weak box office projections for the Marvels, uh, which some have said, is tracking lower than recent bombs like The Flash. Yeah, Sonny, you should put a trigger warning on that. Amazing. Yes, we, we, we'll we get to that in a bit. The unending flood of hashtag content on Disney+, Plus, which is overwhelming audiences and making it harder to keep up with the interlocking stories that have served Marvel so well over the years. Uh, shoddy visual effects that have led audience uh, dissatisfaction to create turmoil in Disney's C-suite. Heads have rolled. Spiraling budgets, such as the reported $25 million an episode for She-Hulk, a show that looked terrible (laughs) because of the shoddy FX work aforementioned. Uh, Behind-the-scenes chaos, as Kevin Feige works to slash budgets and kill projects that aren't coming together. One movie at risk is the forthcoming Blade reboot, starring Oscar winner Mahershala Ali, uh, which has gone through rewrite after rewrite, including reportedly one draft in which Blade was the fourth lead, quote, in a narrative led by women and filled with life lessons, end quote. (laughs) All right. That last line has provided a lot of laughs for folks, folks like Peter Sudeman here. You can hear him there in the background who insist that Marvel's efforts to diversify the lineup have led to much of this disaster, you know, indicative of Disney's overall failure with things like Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny or animated projects like Strange World or Lightyear. While this is potentially true, I guess, anything's possible. It doesn't seem true because that wasn't, it certainly was not the case when Black Panther and Captain Marvel were we're both cracking the billion dollar mark a few years ago. Rather, it just seems more simply that Marvel has run its course here. I'll say, uh, from the point of view of a guy who does. 17 podcasts I've had no desire whatsoever to talk about any of the shows on Disney plus I just have no desire to get anywhere near any of them frankly and I I feel what I would describe as a begrudging responsibility just to even do the movies that are coming out next week's episode on the marvel it's gonna the marvels is gonna be great tune in folks I'm super excited for it Uh, all good things come to an end and all that, you know, Marvel was hit by a double whammy of endings, really. The the Thanos storyline that had kind of dominated the first 10 or so years of the project uh, came to an end at the same time the pandemic began and Disney Plus started flooding the zone with content, uh, creating a natural breakpoint for audiences who had no desire to watch hours of TV to understand one and a half plot points in whatever the next movie that is coming out is. All right. First things first here. Peter, how would you save the Blade reboot starring Maharshala Ali?
2: (laughs) Okay, so it's about a young girl who is uh, she's doesn't know she's a princess and she really she's got her heart set on this boy who is the son of a guy who kills vampires at night with a sword.
0: So Blade is like the (laughs) the patriarch. It's got to be. It's a a Disney
2: princess movie, man. Disney makes princess movies and they should make a Disney princess. I this is I I'm laughing at that that like a week later because that description. Which no one has disputed that it didn't happen. that description is the funniest thing I have read in a trade industry report possibly ever. What in the hell, my friends? How did that like did the did the writer talk to a producer about what Blade was? <laughs> it's a movie about a guy with a sword who kills vampires. Pretty straightforward. Sword. It's that's it. That, and yet you know what? That's the, actually like that sounds like a good movie that I want to see. There were 3 of them already and 2 of them were pretty good. 2 and out they, 3 of them. Yeah, and they were about a guy who Kills vampires with a sword. And he said some awesome stuff while he was doing it. it was great. Also, he's
1: kind of a good vampire, right?
2: Yeah, he's a half vampire, he's a, he, right? Well, so he's he can, a daywalker. He's a walker, right? So he has all of the, their strengths and none of their weaknesses. Okay. It's, it's great. And, and he, he I was, just want
0: to see that movie. He was in the womb when his mother was bitten by a vampire, you see. And that transferred yeah. some of the, the powers, but not all of the weaknesses, which is a it's very... We could do ten minutes on the backstory of Blade if you want. <laughs> this makes
1: more sense than the time my husband tried to explain what the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were to me. Oh what? man, Teenage mutant well they just it's pretty obvious just ooze
0: in the subway, and it makes them yeah. into mutants. I, that's straightforward.
1: But I why know. is there Sensei a rat? Because he
0: was like also people? in the subway along with the turtles. He was also in the sewer, and he got the ooze as well. We're getting off course this here. Is, we we're need we're to getting off topic, but here's the actual thing. I think you can you can
2: take that incredibly ridiculous description of a draft that maybe wasn't the main draft. Maybe, right, like we've we, we this movie has been through a zillion different writers and directors, right? Like maybe it wasn't the primary idea, but was just like, well, man, nothing is working. Let's look at some other ideas. Uh, we don't know. But you can take that and you can actually see, I think, some of the real seeds of the problems at Marvel, which is that Marvel has stopped making movies that highlight the core concepts of their characters. And there's some other problems as well. but, But what are the like, what's the last time they put out a movie that was like Iron Man? It's a guy in a metal suit. He fights a bad guy or like a. Spider-Man, it's a guy in a spider suit and he just, you know, he's uh, he's got some like girlfriend problems and he fights crime around Manhattan. And there's a maybe there's Dr. Octopus like they don't do that. All of these movies are now these high concepts, like a little bit of diversity stuff sprinkled into like some completely impenetrable multiverse stuff with uh, like ties to TV series that you haven't seen and maybe won't ever see. I mean, there was a whole twenty-five minute section in Black Panther two that was setting up armor wars and um, uh, the Iron, Ironheart. Ironheart. There you Ironheart. go, right? Who's setting up that? And like, why? Why did we need that sequence, which was boring and looked like total garbage, and, also and made this long movie not 25- happening?
1: Is we don't the even show know. now not happening?
2: Well, so what's definitely happening, I don't know about Ironheart, this, the show, but what's definitely happening is that the um, the Armor Wars series has been totally scrapped as a series and is being redeveloped as a feature film, which actually isn't a crazy decision. Like, if you're going to make an, uh, an Iron Wars thing, make it two hours, not eight, and put it on the big screen where you, where you can maybe make $750 million. That's what all these than, things should be. Yes. But they've just departed from the kind of simple core concepts that powered a lot of their earlier films. They have other problems, I think they've tried they've leaned into a, a slate of characters that even for Marvel being able to deliver like to make billion dollar films out of uh, out of Guardians of the Galaxy and that sort of thing, their current slate of heroes and characters is just not that well known and not inherently super popular with maybe the exception of Spider-Man, which they' only sort of own, right? Like I mean, they've they' basically are writing these the Spider-Man movies and get some sort of cut from Sony, which still owns the actual movie rights. And it's, it's just a, you combine that with all the effects stuff with the fact that the streaming series are kind of not great and you feel like you have to have seen them to understand the movies. It's, it's a real big problem. And Marvel needs to go back to making movies that are like, are, are named after a character who is a superhero who has a clear concept, like he's a guy with spider powers who fights crime in his neighborhood while having girlfriend problems, and they need to make that movie. And even at, as somebody who sort of felt like some of the Spider-Man sequels got repetitive about some of that stuff, they basically all did pretty well, or at least well enough, because they focused on like the core concept of the character. All of the Iron Man movies, the Avengers movies, you, you got core character concept stuff, and they have departed from that too often, while also flooding the zone with with stuff that just doesn't work and looks like garbage.
0: Alyssa, I mean, it seems that there are two separate but distinct and kind of intertwined at the same time problems here. The first is quality control. You know, the one thing we, would, we always said about Marvel was like, look, maybe none of these movies are going to be, you know, the best film that you see that year, but they will all have a baseline competence to them that is pleasant and that people want to watch. And then the second thing, again, I think, I think there's just audience fatigue. I think we, we have finally, after 25 years almost now of comic books being, if not the, then one of the like last standing genres that every studio was trying to make. I I feel like audiences are just kind of, they just kind of had enough. And that doesn't mean that you can't have successes here, right? Like if it's good, something like guardians of the galaxy three popular did well uh held okay but but more and more you get things like thor uh the whatever thor, thor four, 4 whatever, the really funny whatever, one whatever that wasn't was very called. funny and like and nobody liked it nobody wanted it it still did okay but the next movie gets hurt right ant-man and the wasp quantum mania gets killed at the box office it looks like the marvels is about to get killed at the box office i just like i think audiences are just kind of tired of it
1: yeah, no, I'm I'm completely exhausted by it. And I sort of came of age as a critic and then moved into doing things other than being a critic as my primary job during the superhero era. And I think the combination of too much and having it be terrible, and like increasingly the stuff is just not good, right? Like the FX does not meet sort of the standards of what I expect in, you know, a blockbuster movie, et cetera the superhero industry started to feel incredibly entitled, right? It felt entitled to my time. It felt entitled to my money. And it was just not delivering. You know, I mean, there was a point in which, you know, this podcast, we tried to be really completist about all the Marvel stuff. And I noticed we didn't even talk about talking about Loki, the season yeah. two, right? We just, we all, I think, kind of collectively hit a wall with it. And I think that, this summer represents a really interesting counterpoint to what's happened with, you know, with Marvel, with DC. The sheer amount of this stuff and the sort of expectation that you devote, you know, every waking minute to keeping track of the damn things got exhausting and stopped making the movies feel like events. And- I think Spider-Man No Way Home was probably one of the first movies my husband and I went to see in a theater with a big crowd post-pandemic, like a really big crowd. And that was fun, right? I mean, it felt like movies are back, baby. People are doing it, you know, together. But this summer, we've had Barbenheimer. We've had the Eras Tour. And those have been both big events, but felt really fun or really different, right? You know, I felt like You know, I know you guys didn't like the Arrow's tour very much, but that was, for people who like Taylor Swift but don't want to spend $3,000 on Taylor Swift, like sort of the best way to have that experience. Barbenheimer was a chance to be campy. Oppenheimer was a chance to be – to see something that was, like, serious and cinematic. And they felt like events because they were all genuinely unlike anything else that you had seen at the movies in recent years they were of a high standard, high quality, and going genuinely felt like people – it felt like people were there because they wanted to be, not because, like, we were being force-marched by a cultural behemoth to be there. And, you know, I find it harder to get myself, you know, sort of even marginally hopeful for the next Marvel movie when it both feels obligatory and when I expect it to be bad.
0: Well, guess what? It's coming next week.
1: Yeah, I'm aware. I know. And just...
0: Get ready. The idea of just going to see something that is different, and even if it's still a big budget action-y type movie, something like Avatar The Way of Water, which was a huge hit, you know, at the end of last year going into this year, uh, or the kids' movies, the movies like Mario, uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie, or... Uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which did pretty well, or Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which held on for months and months because there was nothing else in theaters, Uh, or even something like Five Nights at Freddy's. Like, that's a big hit. That's something people were excited to go see on opening weekend. It fell off a cliff after after that. But, like, I think there are things people are excited for, and all of the Marvel stuff feels very much, as you say, Alyssa, like an obligation. It's just like, gotta gotta go see it. Because if I don't, Not going to be able to keep up.
1: And it feels like there's a certain contempt for the audience in the quality problems, right? And I don't think that's actually the case. I don't think Marvel's like, oh, you know, we can deliver the stuff that's garbage and people will see it anyway. I mean, at least if I thought they had contempt for us, they should be saving some money while they're doing it, right? And I guess they are by nickel and diming the FX people and, you know, sort of abusing them. But, yeah, it just feels... Like the company is entitled, feels entitled to our time and money and is delivering just an obviously subpar product, just obviously it was subpar. I mean, one, yeah. of the, one of the things that I thought was most damning about that variety story is the fact that on some of the Marvel TV shows, the final effects were inserted after the shows were released. So if like you watched the show and- on
2: opening night, yeah. you probably didn't see the final effects work. You probably saw what was essentially test, like not quite holding pattern signs, but test effects work. Just right. and,
1: crazy. And arrogance involved in that is insane, yeah. right? I mean, and it's it speaks to a total vanished pride in putting out a good product. I mean- Why on earth would you do that to anybody? I just don't get it.
2: This is actually something we should talk about. I do think it has played a role in making Marvel's uh, issues worse, which is that a bunch of these movies, uh, apparently even going back to some of the quite well-regarded films, were heavily re-edited and heavily worked on right up to the end. And that, in part, was because Kevin Feige was the person who would come in at the end and fix things. And so stuff would have to get reworked, and that's one of the reasons why effects deadlines were always super tight and people were always crunching at the very end of this. There was that incredible quote from Sam Raimi right before, like a couple of months before uh, Doctor Strange 2 came out, where he was like, I think it's done, but I'm not sure. Marvel, they work on their movies till the Very end, the director of the movie didn't know if it was locked or not, because he clearly wasn't the one making the decisions about when it would be locked and what the final print would look like. And that can work if you're making two movies a year and you've got you've got a a supervisor who comes in and says, at, at some point in the process, actually, I need you to redo this in this way. But when you stretch that out to Three movies a year, plus I don't know how many episodes of television, 20 or so, maybe even more than that, all of which are really quite expensive, as the She-Hulk episode budget numbers suggest. There's no way to do that and and make it a high-quality product.
0: The other thing here is we are talking about so much more stuff being put out there. An an instructive lesson here, I think, comes from the book Disney War, which uh, chronicles Michael Eisner's time at Disney. And one of the things in this book was the development and deployment of who wants to be a millionaire in America. And so Bob Iger is head of ABC at this time or, you know, high up, high up at ABC. And the guys who are making the show, it's huge hit. You know, they do it. They do it for a week. It's enormous. It's it's putting up huge numbers. Everybody is excited. Audiences love it. It's it's crushing it in the ratings. Um, they do it for a sweeps thing and it, it continues to just put up huge, huge, enormous numbers. And the, the people who made the show wanted to keep doing that. We want to do like special week long, two week long engagements that people will show up for. It'll be an event. They'll watch it every night. And then Bob Iger was like, no, I want this on three times a week, every week forever. And audiences got burnt out on it like that. I mean, it, like you can't, it's, it was a sort of thing that worked very well as like a special, you tune in. We got a week's worth of episodes here and then we're, we're, it goes away for three or four months. Instead, he wanted, he was like, I want it. If it works now, it'll keep working, right? We got it. We got to get the numbers up. We got to get the numbers up. And that is, that is very much what the Disney plus strategy feels like with Marvel, which is just too much stuff too frequently that is, that is deployed in a way that just kind of saps audience excitement. It's a real problem.
2: I think we got to expand across the movie aisle to every day. Maybe even twice on the weekends.
0: I mean, there. I well, this is a this is a conversation. <laughs> you don't have for, enough podcasts I, to do, Sonny. But it's a serious thing because I I see these people who have who do like three hour podcasts every day, or like the Twitch streamers who are on Twitch all the time. And I just don't understand who is what who like is actually sitting there watching all this. Who has the demand for that much? of the same content over and over again, but I don't know, it works for some people. I could listen to your voice all day long. Well, obviously. All right, so uh, (laughs) what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that they don't know what to do with Blade, the easiest character (laughs) to do things with in the whole world? Alyssa?
1: It's enormously controversial. Obviously, the Blade movie should involve him accidentally falling for a vampire hunter who doesn't know that he's a daywalker and it's a meek, cute, romantic comedy.
0: Duh. Uh Peter.
2: It's a controversy that they don't know what to do with Blade or anything else. The solution to this is actually pretty clear. Marvel needs to bring us Wolverine. Make the Wolverine movie. Make a bunch of Wolverine movies. Make Wolverine and the X-Men... Like they delayed their X Men ninety eight ninety seven uh, the the revival of that cartoon that was so great in the nineteen nineties. But they just need to bring us Wolverine. They need to cast a new Wolverine. Not not be sticking with uh, you know, look. I loved Hugh Jackman, but he did this for like twenty years. It's it's over. There's make a Hugh a Wolverine Jackman Wolverine
0: movie. movie coming out in I like uh, next year with the, it's the Deadpool Deadpool, Deadpool the new, three. It's Deadpool yeah. Wolverine. I know, and
2: they need to they need to find a new one who it's they terrible. can make. Wolverine movies, but Maybe just Wolverine and don't make it a Wolverine multiverse film where he meets the other Wolverines and has a Wolverine squad that he could. No, make it a movie about a guy with claws who, like, cuts up some bad guys and fights in the snow
0: in Canada. And that's it. It's a Wolverine movie. I'm excited for Greta Gerwig's Blade. <laughs> just Blade dressed in hot pink, doing doing techno murders.
1: No, Blade. Blade in like 1865, like waiting for you know, living next door to a house full of girls who are waiting for their father to come home from the Civil War.
0: Blade. Blade goes to community college. Uh, all right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. We're going to be talking about the poor little rich girls of Sofia Coppola's body of work. Speaking of which, on to the main event, Priscilla. <laughs> Directed by Sofia Coppola, Priscilla is an adaptation of Priscilla Presley's memoir, Elvis and Me, which chronicled her years together with the king of rock and roll. As such, the film is pretty tightly focused on the years in which Priscilla, who's played by Kaylee Spaney from age 14 to 28 the whole the whole way, uh, knew Elvis, who is played by Jacob Lordy, We see her as a teen on an airbase in Germany who finds herself invited to then servicemen... Elvis's home for some late night parties. Uh, we see her pine for him after he leaves, then join him in Memphis to finish her high school education and live in Graceland with him Elvis and his father and his grandmother. We see her gilded cage as life gets weird. You try being a Catholic schoolgirl who also happens to be Elvis's girlfriend and see what kind of whispers you get. We see as she tries to adapt to that. We see her grapple with rumors of Elvis's infidelity and the competing demands for his time and intention uh, and their marriage. And then we see it all fall apart in a haze of drugs and Domestic, not quite violence, not as. I, I feel like this movie whitewashes some of what uh, was going on quite at, the, at the end of that marriage there. From Lost in Translation to Somewhere to Marie Antoinette to The Bling Ring, Sophia Coppola has always been most comfortable exploring one very specific idea in one very specific milieu. What if rich, but also not necessarily happy? That's it. That's what she does. Uh, And there's something almost admirable about her commitment to the bit. For all the talk about artists needing to stick to their own lived experiences, the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola seems to understand that she has never known what we might describe as a normal life outside of the spotlight, one where she's not surrounded by the trappings of wealth and fame. I don't think the comparison I'm about to make is precisely correct on a stylistic level, but on a thematic level, the filmmaker she reminds me most of is Michelangelo Antonioni, the director of La Ventura and Blow Up, among other films. They both have this sort of aestheticized ideal of life, like lingering over places and objects and clothing and cars, like stuff as reason for being, but not a good enough reason. And there, there's no other reason really offered. It's just like, this is what it is. Uh, one might call it the oeuvre of ennui. Uh, while watching Priscilla, I found it a little frustrating for the same reason I found Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon a little frustrating. You may remember my complaints uh, uh, there in uh, the focus uh, in in Flower Moon kind of shifted in the film's development. It was supposed to be about the founding of the FBI to one, to a, a different focus, one that, you know, quote unquote, centered the Osage, except it didn't really center the Osage. It kind of centered the killers of the Osage. Um, this worked in Scorsese's film because he was making an epic about the rotten nature of American society. My issue with Priscilla is that despite the title, the movie is only very nominally interested in Priscilla as a person. It really sparks to life whenever she is around Elvis. Um, And the title of the memoir would have been a much more fitting for this film, I think, Elvis and Me, because we are really only given reason to care about her in relation to Elvis Presley, her reflection through him. The moments when we best understand what she was going through are moments in which we see her confusion as to what Elvis expects from her. Consider, for instance, my favorite scene in the film. Priscilla goes to a store, tries on a bunch of dresses for Elvis, but not Elvis, not just Elvis. His his Memphis mafia is there. They're hooting and hollering and whistling, and she is just, like, kind of confused about what she wants, what she should be doing, like, how she is supposed to be performing here. Her life with Elvis is all a performance, and it's a slightly befuddling one. She is unsure how to present herself to the public, to his family, to his friends— to his very desires, um, but outside of that performance, I felt very little reason to care about her or her story. Uh, now, Alyssa, I know this is uh, this is just me being a man. I am a I am I am, as we know, not interested in the interior lives of women. But I would argue this film is also not that interested in the interior lives of women.
1: What I found compelling about this movie is that it's a movie about a girl who and really a girl right and i think this movie does a good job of emphasizing just how young priscilla bellew was when she met elvis presley and just how crazy it was that everyone in her life was like yeah we'll sign your guardianship over to elvis's dad while you go to memphis for a visit because sure that's a thing that Happens in 1962. Yeah, that's a normal thing to do. And, you know, she is someone who is kind of intercepted by Elvis before she has an interior life, right? I mean, she's just at the cusp of, you know, figuring out how to be a person. And she is literally, you know, sort of shifted into another stream. And Elvis himself doesn't regard her as more than a surface, right? I mean, she's literally an ornament that he is adding to Graceland. You know, she's her job is to be there to keep the home fires burning, as he says to her whenever, you know, she talks about going out to visit him on set or in Vegas or whatever wherever he is with the Memphis Mafia or any number of sort of big name stars. And the movie captures just this very I think kind of raw moment in a lot of girls' development, where, you know, and I'm speaking for myself, too, you come to realize that part of being a woman in the world is being a surface, right? And you have to decide how decorative you're willing to be. You have to figure out if you sort of can conform to the expectations that are being written on you. And in my case, you figure out that you're pretty bad at all of the sort of decorative aspects of womanhood. And then you move on to figuring out another way to be and another kind of interior life to have. And, you know, Priscilla is someone who, you know, because she is, kind of gives herself over to someone who is such, you know, who is himself failing to kind of craft his own public image and assert himself. And, you know, Colonel Tom Parker is never seen in this movie, but you constantly see him sort of, controlling Elvis's decision making even controlling his efforts to have a private intellectual life. And so Priscilla becomes the place where Elvis asserts control that he doesn't have over himself, right? Like his ability to construct her surface becomes a substitute for the books that he's reading about yoga and philosophy or for his ability to have a sort of self-determined artistic career. And the movie itself actually becomes, through its use of costuming and makeup, an incredibly t- powerful testament, both to kind of the transformative power of that kind of surface alteration and to stepping away from it. To me, I mean, there are a couple of scenes that really stand out for me in the movie, but to me, the most kind of remarkable thing about it was the way at the end of the movie, when Priscilla is driving away from Graceland, Kaylee Spaney's face all of a sudden looks exactly the way it does in the early scenes of the movie. And you realize how, you know, the slow addition of, you know, the batwing eyeliner, the, like, ever higher hair, the, you know, all of the makeup and the clothes and the sort of outward self-presentation – have almost distorted something in her bone structure. And it's only when she strips it away that you see her face again. I mean, it's it's a movie really worth watching if you're interested in the kind of the subtle side of Hollywood makeup and costuming because the way they do her makeup and her hair in the movie as she gets sort of more and more under Elvis's influence. And the way that starts to recede slowly throughout the movie is so thoughtful and so impactful. And... You know, the other scene that really struck me is the sort of extended sequence of the two of them in Elvis's bedroom. They're not married. They're still not having sex, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're messing around, but they've not had like intercourse yet. And what are they doing? They're playing dress up, right? They're putting on, you know, they're pretending to be characters for each other. And that has becomes this sort of substitute for actual connection that theoretically you would be having with someone you're in a long-term romantic relationship with. So, you know, for me, the kind of lack of interiority in the movie is the point, right? I mean, this this is a movie about two people who are communicating with each other through sort of surface and decoration and performance. And the movie ends when one person wants to stop doing that and develop some sort of interiority for herself. It is not about the part of the journey where she actually figures that out. But it is a movie about discovering that to be a human being, and in particular to be a woman instead of just a girl, you have to be more than a surface.
0: Peter, what did you make of this movie? I know one of the things we talked about over text message was the sort of tactile nature of it. Yeah. Like it's a movie that feels like something. The, well, yeah, the
1: springiness of the carpets, right? Yeah. Like when you see her. yeah. Oh,
2: the bump. first shot of the movie is Kaylee Spaney's toes, her painted toenails in a ridiculously colored shag carpet, just sort of taking in the depth and the feel of it. And that sets the tone for the whole movie, because what this movie is about is about objects and about the mood and feeling of objects, both of being surrounded by them and of being one. And... I'm a huge Sofia Coppola fan because, yeah, her movies are about upper middle class young female ennui, right? Like pretty much all of them, maybe not uh, somewhere, right? But like to, like that's the her primary subject. But in all of her movies, she spends a huge amount of time lingering on the specific objects of the character's worlds, And so you think about something like The Bling Ring, which is, uh, of course, about a a true story about a a bunch of teenagers in Hollywood who, like, rob celebrity houses. And that movie just spends so much time sort of showing you the particular spaces that they are walking around in, in, you know, Paris Hilton's house or, or wherever. And all of the little tiny tchotchkes of Paris Hilton's world that she's created for yourself. But then it contrasts that with the bedrooms that the girls live in themselves and the way they have decorated their own lives and their own sort of, you know, uh, their closets and all of the the clothes that they put on. And it is just so focused on on the physical material world. Uh, and that's that's just true through all of her films. It's true here. And it's really interesting to have seen this right after The Killer, because in a way, she is doing a clearly distinct but fe- you know and and feminine version of something that David Fincher does, which is to bring us into the fascinating but somewhat empty and ennui filled worlds of, of of men through objects, right? And uh, there's a there's a way in which these films feel like sort of a a matched set, uh, you know, a, a yin and a yang, a, an inverse of each other, because they're both about. They're both about a, a kind of emptiness in life, even when you are surrounded by beautiful things. And I just, I love the mood and tone control in all of her movies, but especially in this one. I, I want her to like direct my life. Like, I, sure, it's, it seems a little sad, but also like she, she does this great thing where she's showing us the sadness of her, of her character's worlds, but she's also showing us the allure and the appeal. That carpet is nice, man. It feels wonderful. When you walk into Graceland, everything is exactly in the right spot. And it's just like no place that Priscilla has ever seen before. It is a beautiful and wonderful space. And this movie just does just constantly does this incredible balancing act of managing to to show us both the the way that things feel empty, the way that say that also that like Elvis himself is not particularly there or present and is frankly even, you know, he's abusive uh, at times. And also why she might be drawn to him and what she would get out of it, out of their relationship and what she would want. And partly because she's young and naive, but partly because she was stuck in a a sort of odd and boring and difficult, you know, a, a not particularly appealing life as the daughter of a, the daughter of a guy in the military stuck in Germany, nothing to do, right? She's bored and man, she can suddenly have this incredibly exciting life. And the movie does does her right, I think, does, does its main character right by allowing us to see that it isn't just that this is you know, being forced upon her by an abusive, evil overlord. But in fact, that she is choosing this as well, while also not excusing the fact that uh, Elvis is throwing stuff at her, is cheating on her. It's not just, you know, uh, reports of cheating at the end, right? We clearly see Elvis in bed with another woman uh, in the final stage of the movie. All of that stuff, right? It it doesn't, you know, the the, the way that he is manipulating her, treating her as an object. She is, in some ways, you know, sort of trying, I think, as uh, uh, Alyssa's, right here um, she is trying to see herself well am i just that object can i be that object is that a fulfilling and satisfying life and it's not and yet there it's also not entirely without appeal it's not this miserable experience either and being able to to show us both parts of that and and being able to kind of limb that difference you know sort of the the and and that nuance there is is pretty incredible and then you just combine it with the the total sensual excellence of all of Coppola's films and, and the way she uses mood and, you know, imagery and music. Her low light photography is just gorgeous. I don't know. I, I could just sort of relax into this world and into her movies forever. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm increasingly just like a huge, huge fan of her work.
1: And I should note, it's no mistake that she directs a fair number of ads, especially for sort of luxury goods and perfume. She's very good at selling them.
0: She's a very good commercial director. Is a good way to to think about it because she she understands how to frame a shot and how to slowly push in or slowly pull out, and that that skill. And I I just, but I find it, I find it visually. I don't know. I again, the the example that comes to mind again is Antonioni, where like I, I, I often find myself watching Antonioni and thinking like I can see why this appeals to people. I can see the skill that goes into crafting these shots it's not for me it doesn't doesn't work for me i'm not interested in it um, and that's kind of how i felt about this movie that's that i well, we'll talk about this more in the bonus episode there are movies she has made where i am very into the whole look and the aesthetic of it it just not this one it just just didn't for somebody who is so interested in kind of the interior life of the characters in lost in translation and like what they are going through and what is happening to them and you know how they are dealing with it this movie just feels like uh, a step backwards to me. I don't know. It didn't work. It didn't work for me. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Priscilla. Uh, Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter.
2: I think Sonny's wrong. This movie works. It worked for me. It just it's just great. It's a it's a wonderful, moody, vibey film. Thumbs down.
0: All right, uh, that is it for this week's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Seary, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends! A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at SonnyBunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday!